Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. We're in the book of Daniel. This is called the Old Testament Apocalypse. Of course, you know what the New Testament apocalypse is. That's the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. So when you're in apocalyptic literature, and we have two books that fall into that genre in the Bible, you're dealing with symbols, esoteric kind of things, mysterious signs and numbers, and but it's all prophetic. It has to do with the future. And we, as a church, have really not delved much into that, and so that was a motivation in wanting to look at Daniel, because this is an important book to know if you're going to understand the book of Revelation. If you want to get into the last book of the Bible, you need to have a foundation from the book of Daniel, because the two are connected. So we're here in chapter 7. We're going to look at the interpretation now of this vision that Daniel has in the seventh chapter. Let me begin reading the text, verse 15, to the end of the chapter. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Then he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns out of this, this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, 
and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. You see, this is complex word of God. It's good to remember also the principle that I gave you from the old book on prophecy that I have by Thomas Newton, where he said that the meaning of these things will not be entirely understood until the time of its fulfillment. So we can grapple with this up to a certain point, try to understand it, but... Are we going to have a thorough, perfect understanding of it? Probably not. Much of it. Until it comes to be fulfilled, and then you realize, oh, that's what it meant. Now I see it. So I hope you weren't confused by that reading. Now, if you're hearing this for the first time, and you have not heard the previous two sermons on chapter 7, it'll be somewhat confusing. Daniel has a vision. He sees four animals, beasts, they're called, that come out of the ocean. And he describes each one. These turned out to be the world empires that were going to follow in church, in history. Not church history, in history. The Babylonian Empire, followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Grecian Empire of Alexander the Great, followed by the Roman Empire, the empire that was in power when the Lord Jesus Christ was born into this world. So this is what Daniel is seeing into the future in this vision. So let's come to this because he's going to... Daniel, who knew mysterious things himself, understood dreams and visions, he can't deal with his own vision. It's kind of interesting. He needs help in understanding what what he has seen. So I want you to note, first of all, in the very first verse and the very last verse, so the bookends of the passage we just read, verse 15 and 28, is the impact of the vision on Daniel. He describes it. So let's just look at that, the impact that it had on him, what he saw. Notice he was not elated and thrilled and just rejoicing. He was shaken up by this. Look at his language. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. In the original language here, he uses an interesting metaphor. I just want to point it out because this gives you an idea of how colorful the Hebrew Hebrew can be. My spirit within me is actually my spirit is sheathed, sheathed, like a sheath for a sword. And he's referring to his body. It's a metaphor for his body, which houses his spirit. I thought that was an interesting thing that the people who know the language pointed out. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me. You might even have that as a footnote. It was sheathed by his body. 
His spirit was anxious. He was alarmed by these visions. Now, after hearing the interpretation, notice what he says at the end in verse 28. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. So, after understanding what it means, his alarm and fright even was kicked up a notch or two by the interpretation. Greatly alarmed, and my color changed. I became pale by the understanding of the vision. So it was a frightening thing that's revealed to him. But I kept the matter in my heart. So he kept all this to himself. Okay, so this is what he says at the beginning and the end, how it impacted him. Now let's turn to the interpretation. And actually we have, I'm breaking the interpretation down into two parts because in verses 16 to 18, the angel gives him a very short Reader's Digest edition, as it were, of the meaning of his vision. Very, very compact. Notice how the, he turns to one, verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there. Well, who's he referring to? We have to go back to verse uh, 10 in the text where he's, he has... He sees what's going on in heaven and the judgment of God is being set and there's thousands and ten thousands gathered before him, before the Ancient of Days, before God. It's a heavenly scene and he's referring to an angel. This angel is anonymous. It has no name given to us in the text. He turns to this anonymous angel who becomes uh, like his interpreter of his vision. And he asks him, what is the truth of all this? So he told me and he made known to me the interpretation. And this is how he sums it up. The four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So this is a very short explanation of all that Daniel saw. It didn't entirely satisfy Daniel. But let's look at this for a second. The four kings. I I just want to point it out that the four beasts are said to be four kings, but later on he's going to talk about the fourth kingdom. So these are interchangeable. If there's a king, there's a kingdom. If there's a kingdom, there's a king. You cannot have one without the other. So it's implying that it's probably referring to an individual king, but also his kingdom, the whole realm of his rule, the kingdom. So that's an important thing to realize. Three times he mentions the kingdom in verses 23 and 24. Notice that they arise out of the earth. What was the original vision? They arose out of the sea, 
out of a great sea earlier. So we have an explanation of what the sea is. The sea represents the earth. And we know the sea is raging at times. It's turbulent. It's anything but a restful place. And this is a very appropriate image of the nations. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage, for example? Psalm 2 and verse 1. Psalm 46 and verse 6, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. So this is the way the nations are portrayed in the prophet Isaiah. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. So this is a very apropos image of the nations of the world. So out of the nations of the world, where things are very restless, turbulent, anything but peaceful, these beasts or kings or kingdoms come out one after the other in succession. Not all four at the same time. One comes out, and then the next one, and then the next one, and so on. But he says, but the saints, verse 18, of the Most High, that is, the holy ones, if you want a more literal rendering of who the saints are, who who are the holy ones in God's kingdom? Well, these are people who have been saved by the grace of God. They're the people that belong to God. They're the people of the covenant. This would have been applied in that day to the Jewish people, the devoted people of God. But as we look back on it, we would have to say this applies to the people of God of all ages, God's chosen people, whether Jew or Gentile, those that belong to Jesus Christ. So they receive and possess the kingdom, according to the angel. They don't possess the kingdom of the beasts, That's not their inheritance. They're not getting one of the kingdoms of the beasts. They get God's kingdom. And there's a big difference between the kingdoms of the beasts and the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of the beasts, they're unstable, they're temporary, they come and go. One comes up, it passes away to be supplanted by the next one. But not with God's kingdom. God's kingdom is eternal. It's forever and ever and ever, to use the language here at the end of verse 18. Did you see that? That's three times in the original. This is a superlative, one forever after another, three times. You know, sometimes we'll say, oh, forever and ever. Well, that's, the Hebrew here takes it a step further, forever and ever and ever, meaning for all eternity. So this is the summary interpretation by the angel. Now in verse 19, I'm making this a separate point. This is my third point. We now have a detailed interpretation of the fourth beast. Daniel is especially interested in this fourth beast. Because it involves this little horn that comes up. He wants to know more about this. This is what troubled him because of what was said to him. So in verses 19 to 20, 
2, Daniel here is actually recalling the vision of the fourth beast. There's no interpretation going on here. This is Daniel recalling the vision. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. Remember in in his vision that fourth beast was not compared to any animal. Do you call that? First it was a lion that came out of the sea, having wings of an eagle, and and then the uh, bear came out of the sea, and it had three ribs in its mouth that it was eating, and it was raised up on one side. And then the leopard with four heads. But when he comes to the fourth beast, there's no comparison made to an animal. It's nondescript. It simply has teeth of iron, bronze claws. It's a a monster. It's grotesque. Ten horns. This is what he sees. And it's a, it's a frightening animal because it's devouring. It's uh, just destroying everything in its path. It has this power. And whatever's left over, it stamps it and breaks it. And this is, so Daniel wants to know more about that. So he's rehearsing this to the angel. And about the ten horns that were on its head and that other horn that came up called, previously, the little horn, the small horn. What about this eleventh horn? And when it comes up, it knocks out three of the ten. What is that? What's he referring to here? So he's going through all that. This little horn, it has eyes and a mouth, which indicate it's speaking of a man, actually that spoke great things and that seemed greater than all its companions. So he he sees all this. He says that this horn made war with the saints. This probably really bothered Daniel, that the horn declared war on God's people and prevailed over them. How long? Until the Ancient of Days. This is God portrayed as an old man in the Bible who is the judge of the whole earth. Until then, judgment is given for the saints of the Most High, that is, for in their favor. <laughs> is God coming, intervening in judgment on behalf of his people. And then they are given to possess the kingdom. So Daniel, this is Daniel rehearsing all of this. There's no interpretation going on here. So now the angel is going to speak to this. Verse 23. Then he said, that is the angel, as far as the fourth beast, now who's the fourth beast again? The fourth beast, most commentators see this, this is referring to the Roman Empire, the fourth beast. So Daniel's writing in the 6th century, B.C. So he's, look, he's talking about something that's going to come several centuries later with the rise of Rome. 
There shall be a fourth kingdom. Notice the angel changes it from a king to a kingdom. This is why I say these are interchangeable. The four beasts are four kings or they're four kingdoms. They're both. It's not either or. It's interchangeable. This, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. And this was true of the Roman Empire. Know the previous empire of Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, or even Alexander the Great's great empire rivaled Rome in how much of the world was conquered. And that's exactly what he goes on to say. Notice, he's going to be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and swallow up uh, many, many territories of the world, of the inhabited world, came under Roman dominion. It'll trample down and break it to pieces. So whatever stood in the way of Rome, they conquered it. Yeah, they conquered the whole inhabited world. There's a quotation from an ancient writer, Herodian. Yeah, I thought I would include this because this, is a, this validates this point. He says there was no part of the earth where the Romans have not extended their dominion. No part of the earth where they had not extended their dominion. They went as far as Great Britain. Think of that. Swallowing up territories, subjugating the inhabitants, and so on. Now, so he's describing Rome. Now he mentions these ten horns. I'm in verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, the fourth kingdom, Ten kings shall rise, shall arise. Stop right there for a minute. This is something that I, I learned in the process of my preparation. That I was thinking originally that this is just speaking about the multiplicity of kings of the Roman Empire, the many rulers that Rome had, one after another of emperors and that this was the way he was describing. And I said, no, that, it's not referring to that because the ten horns come, all, come up at the same time. They don't come up one horn and then another horn in succession. If, if the horns came up like that, then we would think, okay, this is referring to the succession of rulers over the Roman Empire over many, many centuries. No, these are ten horns that come up all at the same time. So they're simultaneous and they're from the same kingdom. They're all out of Rome. So what I learned is as the Roman Empire began to break apart, that it actually broke down into several regions of sovereignties, individual kingdoms that were ruled by different kings. And there happened to be, so I read, I'm not a historian, I can't, I'm only telling you what I read, there were ten of them. Sir Isaac Newton, 
had a list, another one had a list. Some of these lists are very similar and overlap. I'm not going to tell you what the lists are because it's not important to what we're looking at. But I'm just telling you, the Word of God is very accurate in how it predicts the future. The Bible is 100% accurate when it's telling us what's coming in the future. It never makes a mistake. It's not 90% accurate. It's always 100% accurate. Because who's giving it? It's God. And God knows the future. He knows the details. He can lay it out exactly of what's going to happen. So this, this is the premise to this. This is why Bible prophecy is so interesting because it's, it's coming from the God whose plan is being revealed to us. He's telling us what's coming. So this happened to the Roman Empire. It broke, it broke up into these various regions. And these ten kingdoms, they occupied the areas of the world that were once governed by Rome. Now he goes on. And here we're coming to the very troubling thing, I believe, for Daniel. Verse 24, the end of the verse. And another shall arise after them. Another what? Another horn. This is referring to the little horn earlier that he describes. Who makes war on the saints and prevails over them. Another horn will arise after them, he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. Okay, let's, let's, rather than me read that, I just want you to note seven or eight things that are mentioned here about the little horn. First of all, notice that he emerges from the fourth beast. The fourth beast kingdom, which means he's connected to Rome, to the Roman Empire. Secondly, notice that he comes later. Originally, the beast, and then ten horns, and then he comes up later. So what's that telling us? It's telling us that this little horn comes up later in the history of the Roman Empire. He's not there at the beginning of the Roman Empire. He comes later in their history. The important point. Notice that he's different from the former ones, uh, the other ten horns. In other words, he exercises a different kind of a rule. He's He's a different kind of a king, a different ruler. Well, in what sense? Well, who knows? He might rule in different realms, different spheres. Maybe he's a political ruler. Maybe he's an ecclesiastical ruler as well. We're not told exactly. But he's a different kind of a ruler. He puts down these three kings... I can't really speak to that. I don't understand that. But they apparently were absorbed 
by the dominion of the little horn and became subject to him. But now notice verse 25. Because earlier in the vision when it says that he spoke boastful words, he had a a big mouth, here we're told very specifically that he speaks words against the Most High. So whoever this ruler is, he's, he's against the God of the Bible. The Most High is referring to Yahweh. So this is not somebody that's on the side of righteousness, on the side of truth. This is an enemy. This is an adversary. This little horn that comes out of Rome. And look at how he puts his war against God's people. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. That's a very interesting way way of putting it. Again, this is another metaphor. because It's talking about the wearing out of clothes. Well, this is, what this is describing like that is a prolonged course of persecution of God's people. It goes on and on and on. It's unrelenting, wearing out the saints. And then look at this point. And he shall think to change the times and the law. This is a very insightful thing here about the little horn. Changing the times has to do with implementing, and I'm quoting here, implementing a new calendar of religious observances and festivals. Huh. This is a very... So his rule, his rule might be ecclesiastical if he has the authority to change the calendar of God's people. He thinks to change the times and notice the law, the Torah. He has his own law. He makes his own rules. He imposes laws that don't necessarily agree with the law of God. Perhaps they're in contradiction to the law of God. So these are very bold things that the little horn does. How long is he going to be able to carry on like this? Well, notice... And they shall be given into his hand, who, that is the saints of the Most High, they'll be given into his hand. He's, again, this is asserting the, uh, the authority of the little horn over God's people. He's going to wear them out with persecution. But we have this interesting phrase now. How long is this going to go for? For a time, times, and half a time. There's two ways that have been brought out by Bible scholars as to what this means. 
the most common, the most traditional interpretation of that phrase for a time, times, and half a time is three and a half years. Time, singular, refers to one year. Then it's times, plural, which not necessarily is two, but it's a minimum of two. If you, if you make it plural, then there's at least two times. And so it's one time and then two times. But again, that's questionable because we're not sure times means just two. It could refer to more than two. And then half a time. So this is how the three and a half years comes up out of this. Another way of viewing this is to understand it in a symbolic way. And this is what is meant by that. So if, you've, if you're thinking, uh, okay, he continues this for a time, times, and then you might expect the angel to say, and times again, he adds and a half a time. And it's though the little horn is carrying on for some time and then he abruptly has his power ended a half a time. In other words, it would kind of follow the idea of the Lord Jesus in the Olivet Discourse when he says, For the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. They shall be cut short. Otherwise, no flesh will be saved during the tribulation time. So it's, it's that idea. Time, times, and then half a times. Cut short, abrupt ending to the power of the little horn. Now the scene changes in verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment. This happened, the the same change in scene occurred when Daniel is having the vision. So this is part of the interpretation. The angel is still speaking to Daniel, but the court shall sit in judgment. So he continues for a time, times, and half a time until God's judgment. That's it. God is going to intervene. He's going to put an end to little horn, his power over God's people. His authority is cut off, cut short by the intervention of God. So the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. Notice that. To be consumed and destroyed to the end, that is, forever. So that's the end of Horn. (laughs) He's done. He's evil. He continues for a time. We don't know how long. Is it three and a half years? Is that the correct way? I can't argue that. This is one of the, this is the apocalypse apocalyptic part of this. We don't know what that means exactly. But what we are assured of is that he's going to come to an end. It's not forever. This is the encouragement part of the vision for God's people. So he is, comes to an end and then verse 27, I mean, just notice this. And the kingdom and the dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, those that the horn made war against, those that the horn prevailed over, into whose hand they had been put, 
for a time. And he triumphed over them. He took their lives. He persecuted them, hounded them, shed their blood. No, but that, that's coming to an end. That's going to end. And God's kingdom then becomes the inheritance of his people. They enter upon the possession of the kingdom. And that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Now, I want to point out something. If you go back to verse 16, when it's talking about one like the Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days and is presented to him, and he receives the kingdom, it says that the nations are going to serve him. Verse 16. But here, it says that, the, that it's God's people that are going to be served. You see that? Huh. What does the New Testament say? If we endure, we will also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.16, or 2.12. And to go to the very end of the Bible, last chapter of the Bible, the eternal state. God's people says in verse 5, Revelation 22 and verse 5, speaking of the church, the people of all ages that belong to God, they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22, 5. So we're going to share the throne in a sense. Who can conceive of what that means? What is that going to mean for the church? Well, here it says we're going to somehow be served and obeyed. Hmm. I have no idea the implication of that, what that means. I can just connect it with what the New Testament says that, we, that God's people are going to reign. Going to reign. Christ is the head. He's the chief king who reigns forever and ever. But we, who, who is the church? We are the body. He's the head, we're the body. We're connected intimately to Jesus Christ. So his reigning involves his people. This is why the 24 elders are seen in the book of Revelation as sitting on 24 thrones with him, reigning with him. Okay, I want to have a quick theological sidebar. Now, at the end. This is toward, and this is how I'm, I want to word this, this is toward the identification of the little horn. Who is the little horn? Well, if you're expecting me to name somebody, I'm not going to do that. Nobody knows this, who this is exactly. But what I do want to do, which gives us Further insight is turn you, and again, we're going to turn to this, to the last book of the Bible, chapter 13. Revelation 13, verses 1 to 7. Now, as we read this, I want you to note the parallels to what Daniel's vision revealed. Note the parallels now. We're to connect these. This is not by accident. 
This is not a, an exegetical stretch on my part to try to make something out of this. No, this is, to me, it's pretty clear. Revelation 13, 1, 1 through 7. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns. Okay, so a little different. But we have a beast. Notice it's not named. What kind of a beast? Simply a beast. Notice it's coming out again, the sea. Which represents the earth, the nations. So this is a beast who arises out of the nations. Daniel actually tells us which kingdom it is that he comes out of. He comes out of the Roman Empire. With ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems on its horns. And blasphemous names are on its heads. And the beast that I saw was, now notice this, it was like a leopard. And its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's. Those are the same three animals that are compared to the, the beasts that come out of the sea of Daniel 7. And like the fourth beast that Daniel sees that is not compared to any animal, neither is this beast compared to any of them. But notice he's a composite. He's a composite of those three animals. So the vicious nature of a leopard, a bear, and a lion are all put together to represent the character of this beast, which fits the beast, the fourth beast of, of Daniel 7. In, in my view, it seems to embrace all of this together. He has the ten horns. And notice this now. And to it the dragon gave his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, who is the dragon? Well, you have to just go back one chapter, chapter 12 of Revelation. The dragon is the devil. It's very clear. The great red dragon represents that old serpent, the devil, who has deceived mankind ever since the Garden of Eden. Notice, he's the one kind of behind the power and authority of this beast. He's the one that's energizing him. So this is giving us a little insight into who really is operating here in the little horn. If these are the same, and I'm arguing that we're talking about the same person, system, kingdom... It's energized by Satan. This is an insight. So a lot more going on behind the scenes than simply an evil man. He is being driven, moved to make war against God's people because the devil, who is our arch enemy, is behind the beast. He gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. 
Now, one of the heads, and this is, this is revelations now adding to the picture, and there's no, nothing to compare it to exactly in Daniel's vision. One of its heads seemed to have received a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed, and the whole world, whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon. So in following the beast, there was, in reality, they were worshiping the, the devil, is essentially how I would read this, who is behind the beast, for he had given him his authority. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast who can be? Now, verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, That's what we read about the horn in Daniel 7. Same thing, he blasphemes God. And then notice this. And he was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. So maybe that interpretation of a time and times and half a time is three and a half years. Perhaps. Here it's clearly that long. Verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling and those that dwell in heaven. Verse 7, and it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. So again, these are all the parallels. Now, who is the beast of Revelation 13? This is the Antichrist. So the little horn, this is the traditional for centuries, the early church fathers all believe this. This is the Antichrist. John says in his little letter, little children, we know it's now the last time and that the Antichrist is coming. This is 1 John 2.18. And and then he goes on to say, well, there's already many antichrists here. And we understand what he meant by that in that little letter. It talks about those that deny certain cardinal doctrines related to Jesus Christ. His incarnation, whether or not he had a true body, was a real man. Those that deny those things, this is antichrist, he says. But I, I wanted to make that point that Antichrist is coming. This is, this is what the Bible reveals. Now, Paul talks about him. There's only a couple of passages in the New Testament about him. The other great passage is 2 Thessalonians 2. So if you want to read more about the Antichrist, what, what does it mean, Antichrist? Well, very simply, anti means in the place of or against. That's the meaning of the preposition anti when it's put with Christos. Antichristos, the one who is against Christ, his adversary, but he's also in the place of Christ. That's one of the words that's used when it says that Jesus died for us as our substitute in our place, anti. So the Antichrist fulfills both of those as the adversary of Jesus and an imposter of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is coming. So Daniel is all, has in chapter 7 shown the church way back in the 6th century B.C. 
that the Antichrist is coming to persecute God's people. But his appearance is connected with the Roman Empire. And we know the Roman Empire went on for many centuries beyond Jesus in the first. There's some that take it to like the 5th century A.D. for the western part of the empire and the eastern half, when it broke in two, one lasted much longer than the other. The eastern lasted to like the 1500s, 1400s, way far into the Middle Ages. So we're looking at a period of history that covers a lot of centuries. It is not easy to define this, and that's where I have to leave this. I'm not going to give you all the answers. I don't know all the answers. I'm just trying to be faithful to the Word of God and put what I believe together what the Bible is telling us here. Finally, now, just a couple of concluding points. This passage of Daniel 7 and what it says there, it's a reminder to us that God's people are going to have to suffer tribulation before they enter the kingdom of God. That, that's clear. Now, not just because the Antichrist, but this is true. Paul went back to the churches that he founded in his original first missionary tour there in Asia Minor when he went to Lystra, Derby, and all those places. He, he backtracked. He went back to encourage the saints. He encouraged them to persevere, for one thing. The new Christians, they need to be encouraged to persevere. And how did he do this? This is in Acts 14, verse 22. This is what he said to them. That you, through much tribulation, must enter the kingdom of God. This is what he taught young Christians. That you are going to go through much tribulation before you enter the kingdom. Doesn't define what that tribulation is exactly. Jesus said that in the world we will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Tribulation obviously means trouble, suffering. Might take the form of persecution, might involve terrible personal suffering. I think it has many, many applications. But that's it. this passage in Daniel 7 is a reminder to us of that, that God's people before they took possession of the eternal kingdom, they had war declared against them by the horn. Now, secondly, here's something else to think about. The worst evil that man is capable of, and I think we've been reading about it right here, is how does it get any worse than blaspheming God, making war on God's people, unrelenting, War, persecution. I mean, this is, this is the pinnacle of evil right here. And no wonder Daniel was alarmed and he was frightened by all of this. But it should not be confusing for God's people. It shouldn't cause us to despair because this evil does not triumph. This is the beautiful thing about what's told here. This is the encouraging part. The horn gets destroyed. Yes, he is reigning. It's a reign of terror for a time, times, but a half a time. Then it's, it's over with. It's all done. That's the way it is. 
We need to remember that. Keep that perspective. You might be in the middle of a terrible storm right now in your life for one reason or another, but you just have to remember, look, I see light at the end of the tunnel. This is not going to last forever. This isn't how it's going to be forever and ever and ever. This will soon pass, like some say. This also will pass. You ever heard somebody use that expression? Yes, you can say that. This also will pass. No matter how horrific it is, how discouraging, how frightening, how painful, this too shall pass. And then I just want us to remember that the saints of the Most High have a glorious future promised to them and waiting for us. Imagine what this kingdom is going to be that's an eternal kingdom. Well, I, I just want to join in with Paul and recount what he says in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Boy, what a verse. I mean, this, this is what we need to keep in the back of our mind as we think about the future. This is why it's described in the, at the end of the Bible as uh, streets of gold, pearl gates. I mean, why, why is he using that kind of language? Because what God has prepared for his people is something so incredibly amazing, so glorious. We're not going to be prepared for it. We're all going to be, I think, shocked in a glorious way when we realize what God has prepared for his people. No wonder Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then finally, let's be reminded that there's only one thing that lasts forever, according to this passage. What is it? The kingdom. Three times we're told it's forever and ever, the kingdom. Nothing else is going to last. It's the only thing that lasts forever. And, of course, our, we will live forever. God is forever and ever. But specifically in this passage, the thing that is enduring through all is the kingdom of God. No wonder Jesus said, seek first of all the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.